You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The state will relax the pandemic restrictions under the Safe Travels program starting tomorrow. We have with us Sherry Kajiwara from the State Transportation Department to talk about what travelers can expect. Good morning, Sherry. Good morning, Catherine. Happy to be here with you all. Yes. So so tell us. I know there's lots of planning behind the scenes, but uh, you know, what can you tell us? Okay, well, first of all, Hawaii Safe Travels still exists, so we want people to know that to enter the state of Hawaii, whether you are a resident or a visitor, you do have to open a Safe Travels account, and you have to record your trip. But previously, we did allow you to bypass the mandatory quarantine. So I want to remind everybody, the quarantine order is for the safety of Hawaii, and it applies to both returning residents and visitors alike. And if you want to be exempt from quarantine before you could take a test, 72 hours before departing or getting on your flight, and if it's negative, then you could bypass quarantine. Now we're offering a second option to be exempt from quarantine. You can still take the test if that's what you prefer to do, or you can show a vaccination card. So that's the new change that's going to start on the 8th Now, as far as actually showing that uh, vaccination card, is it best to have the hard copy in hand or load it up on your phone? The requirements right now is that you must upload a copy of that card. So take a photo of it, turn it into a PDF, upload it into your Safe Travels account, and you need to sign an attestment that the card is true and valid. That is the legal attestation that we require we also want you to carry a copy or carry the card with you on arrival because we'll check the card and check that, that is the card that you've uploaded into the system. So you're required to upload it and you're required to carry it in hand. Okay, so tell us what have you been doing uh, to prepare for this change, you know, as far as deploying either additional personnel or getting them used to a new system? Well, our staff are trained as screeners. But the hardest thing, Catherine, is getting the public to understand. So testing is still an option for everybody. So if you don't want to do vaccination, you didn't want to get vaccinated, or if you're under 12, because remember now, children five years of age or older are also subject to quarantine orders unless they have an exception. So since they are not vaccinated, they can't use that exception, but the testing exception still exists for them. So getting people to understand that they can test or show a vaccination card is the challenge we have. So that's why I thank you for letting your your listeners know these rules and be aware. And, you know, I know we had what what they were saying, like uh, about 100,000 travelers arrive this past weekend over the holiday? Yes. You know, we we, we had very little travelers in January, February, March. But since, I think, Memorial Day, the numbers have jumped. We're looking at about maybe 30,000 people arriving every day. So it was about a thousand over the three-day weekend uh, for Fourth of July. So we do have a large amount of people coming in. Vaccination card exception is a lot faster for us to process than reviewing test results. So that should make the process quicker. But if you are flying as a resident, the change on the eighth won't really affect too many of you because we've already been accepting Hawaii-issued vaccination cards since last. The change on July 8th is now we will accept vaccination cards issued in the United States. So like my daughter, Catherine, she was vaccinated in college in California. She would not have been able to use her card all month 
but now from July 8th, she will be able to use that exception. So if you have friends, family, relatives that are coming down from the mainland and they're vaccinated out of Hawaii, this will be a big help for them. You know, we did have one listener who uh, inquired about, I think it was her son who uh, got vaccinated, I think, in Europe and was traveling to the U.S. And I think he might have had AstraZeneca. And, and uh, you know, how does that all work when you have cases like that that didn't get, you know, the, the main three, either Johnson and Johnson, Pfizer or Moderna here in the U.S.? That is a good point, Catherine, because what we're trying to educate people is from June 15th, we're accepting cards issued in the state of Hawaii, and that's what it is right now. Beginning July 8th, tomorrow, we will accept all cards issued in the United States. Okay, U.S. territories. U.S., U.S. territories, yes. So that means that if you got your vaccination outside of the United States, that will not be accepted for domestic travel. Okay, so you'll have to go into quarantine. You will have to test. Right. Oh, that's test. your other gotcha. option. That okay. option has existed since the program's inception, and that still is an option if you cannot take this new option of vaccination cards. Okay. And I know that, uh, you know, there's still a big question mark about international travel and how that's all going to play out in the months to come. Uh, you know, we just have to wait and see how that that goes, I guess. Right. So um, vaccination cards are not accepted for for international travel. And the only way that's whether you're tested in Hawaii or United States, as long as you're coming through an international portal, we don't accept vaccination cards. Um, you do have to test from a trusted test part- partner um, internationally, and that will exempt you from quarantine. I know not every country has a trusted test partner, but you might have to fly to a portal that does have one, test, and then connect to Hawaii. What about the travelers, let's say, from Canada? Canada also, uh, you might you need to test from a trusted test partner in Canada, and then you can enter Hawaii with that. Okay. And anything else you think that uh, we should be aware of? Do you expect any hiccups tomorrow? Well, I think the hiccups are going to be if people don't open their accounts, they didn't upload their document, and they didn't sign a testing that it's true and valid, because if that is all done, the screeners will take two minutes, under two minutes, to process every traveler. If it's not done, it can take 15 minutes to help them upload, and that's where the backlog is going to be. So for best practice, expedited processing, if everybody could be ready, have your card in hand, have your account filled out, and it will be very seamless. Uh, here's another thing. If you're traveling on one of the airlines that offers wristbands, and that just means the agents at the gate are going to do the screening for us. If they've done the screening, same screening as you do down here with the agents of the airlines at boarding, they'll give you a wristband. So when you land, you just flash that wristband to the security guard, you go straight to baggage claim. Okay, so that will expedite things. Yes. If you if you fail to do this account and you just bring your hard copy... We will have to help you open an account, gotcha. help you upload the document, show you where to sign to a test, and then screen you in. And that can take upwards of 15 minutes. Okay. That's when our lines get long. Right. So so you need to have all that digitized. That's that would very help key. Us. That would help everybody. Right. Okay. And you know, if we're getting 30,000 people a day. <laughs> yes. Yes. We uh, can process a lot if everybody just cooperates and gets it done. Anything more on the neighbor islands? 
Uh, no, the process is the same for every point of entry across the entire state of Hawaii. One thing I do think is good to know, Catherine, is that the three documents we do accept is the CDC card that you're given when you get your test. That is the primary document that you should be carrying. If you've lost that, see if you can get a replacement through your provider, because that is really the key. Okay. You can also get a, what they call a VAMS printout, and VAMS is a, is a federal database. But not everybody's in the database. It depends on whether your provider entered you into the system after you got your shot. It was not a very coordinated effort interne- I mean, um, across the United States. So some are in VAMS, some may not be in VAMS. But if you are entered in VAMS, we do accept the VAMS printout. Okay. But you do have to uh, create an account, go online, and digitize this thing. For safe travels, yes. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Thank you so much, Sherry. Really appreciate your Thank time. Thank you, this Catherine. Morning. All right. All right. Bye bye. Thanks so much. We've been hearing from Sherry Kajiwara from the State Department of Transportation about the safe travels programs and the changes uh, for those who can show that they have been vaccinated. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Up next, your backyard quiz. Instant ethnic diversity could be one theme of today's Backyard Quiz. Hawaii becoming the 50th U.S. state in 1959 created opportunities for several minorities to hold office for the very first time. Hiram Fong, one of our state's inaugural senators, was the first Chinese-American to serve in Congress. Daniel Lakaka was the first Native Hawaiian to serve in both the U.S. House and Senate. Our country's first lieutenant governor of Chinese and Hawaiian descent also came from the Aloha State, He was born on the Big Island in 1908 and graduated from Hilo High School in 1926. In 1934, he was elected to office for the first time as the Speaker Pro Tem of the Territorial House of Representatives. He was elected to the Hawaii County Board of Supervisors in 1940, and because of his popularity and leadership, was selected in 1959 to be the Republican candidate for lieutenant governor to run alongside aside William F. Quinn in Hawaii's first gubernatorial election. The pairing won, which made Quinn the state of Hawaii's first governor and this Hawaii Island native the first lieutenant governor. Do you know his name? Call 941-3689 or 1-877-941-3689 to give us your answer. First one to get it right gets a tote bag that says, I got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareetHawaii.com.
veto overrides the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats legislative reporter Blaze Level on the line today. Good morning. Hey, glad to be back. Yeah, so, you know, I have not been down to the state capitol for a very long time. <laughs> Were you actually there uh, watching the proceedings yesterday during the overrides? Yeah, a lot of people haven't been down to the Capitol since it's been closed for more than a year, Catherine. But my colleague Kevin Dayton and I uh, were in our office down at the Capitol tracking what was happening with the override session yesterday. And basically what happened is lawmakers uh, voted to override five of Governor David E. Gay's vetoes uh, yesterday. That's the most of any sitting Democratic governor in state history. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's not often that this happens. And, and there were five vetoes, right? There there were 27 vetoes total, and the legislature overrode five of those yesterday. And you're right, it's not common that this happens. Uh, Ige was last overridden in 2016. Uh, Neil Abercrombie had no overrides. And Ben Cayetano had won in the early 2000s. However, the legislature regularly uh, issued overrides when Governor Linda Lingle, a Republican, was in office. She vetoed more than 300 bills. And in one year, uh, just in one session, the legislature decided to override 38 of her vetoes. Well, now, the the biggie, of course, was the um, HTA, Hawaii Tourism Authority bill. Yeah, much of the attention has been on that bill. It's called House Bill 862. And some in the building have described it as, you know, kind of like a Franken bill, a Frankenstein bill, if you will. The biggest thing it does is it defunds the HTA. That's Hawaii, the Hawaii Tourism uh, Agency. It's a state agency that was supposed to market uh, Hawaii to the tourist industry. Um, And lawmakers yanked the dedicated source of funding for that, instead replacing it, for this year at least, with federal relief funds. And now they're going to have to operate like every other agency and go to the legislature every year to ask for their budget. Now, part of this is a broader move by lawmakers to do a couple things. They say they want better oversight of how the HTA operates. Uh, Speaker Psyche was... On the Star Advertiser Spotlight program not too long ago, and he said that they want the they don't think he doesn't think the agency needs to be marketing Hawaii anymore. If you look at our tourism numbers, tourists are finding Hawaii all on their own. They want HTA to start focusing on you know some other things like destination management and attracting better quality tourists. Yeah, I mean we've heard lots of back and forth over that where you know HTA says well. DLNR should be doing more to manage, you know, uh, some of the crowds at the recreational sites and uh, lots of back and forth, you know, on this issue, how we can deal with over tourism. Yes. And to, and to that point, the legislature also passed another bill allowing DLNR to set, you know, more fees uh, for entry to certain state parks and state beaches. We've seen that already with Hanama Bay. Um, DLNR is doing it in other state parks around the state. So we'll have to see, you know, whether or not that really does help manage tourism here on the islands. Yeah. And, you know, they are talking about uh, doing a reservation system like the city's uh, Hanama Bay over at Diamond Head uh, um, Monument Park. And, uh, you know, we'll see, uh, you know, how how that goes. Uh, What else did they um, uh, go thumbs down on? So they overrode five bills yesterday, and uh, you know a couple of them are 
smaller bills. There's a one out there to require dog and cat owners to microchip their pets. Uh, another that dealt with the authority for the Hawaii made trademark that you see on some products. Uh, but a couple I want to point out that caught some people's eyes uh, is one that eliminates certain ad reports for candidates while they're running for office. They'll still need to disclose, you know, on campaign spending reports periodically when they spend or what they spend on advertising. Uh, but this eliminates certain ad reporting disclosures that they need to make. Another that's gotten an all, a lot of attention is a bill requiring the DOE to report cases of COVID-19 in school. Schools. The governor pushed back against that, saying, yeah, raising privacy concerns. But lawmakers, you know, have said that this is data that schools already collect and helping parents understand where COVID cases are can help keep their children safe. And uh, lawmakers are supposed to go back uh, into session on Thursday, right? Thursday afternoon. Uh, work's not done. They need to fix up some budget bills. The governor is asking them to plug in about $496 million worth of general bond, general obligation bond debt uh, into one of those budget bills. It, there's kind of a snafu with how the legislature handled some federal relief funds. They'll also consider overruling the governor on yet another measure uh, Thursday. Uh, that one appropriates more than a billion dollars over the next two years to state-funded construction projects. Okay. All right. Well, we'll see what happens on Thursday. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks. That was reporter Blaze Level with today's reality check. To read the legislative coverage, visit civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from ProService Hawaii, offering advice to employers on managing business challenges due to the coronavirus. More at proservice.com slash COVID help or by calling 808-207-7634. The Census Bureau projected that in less than 40 years, America could become a majority-minority country. That's brought a mix of eager political anticipation by some and fear from others. Sociologist Richard Alba says both presumptions are wrong. We'll talk to him about why he says America is more complex than the myth of a majority-minority country. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. The exhibition, Joyful Return, features a gallery presentation of modern and contemporary works from a diverse group of 20th century artists through July 25th. HonoluluMuseum.org.
This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On this week's Manu Minute, we're revisiting the Ayo, or the Hawaiian stilt. This native bird might be downlisted from endangered to threatened. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a public hearing tonight at 5 p.m. You can find out more on our website at hawaiipublicradio.org. But here's Dr. Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo with the Song of the Ayo. The I.O., or Hawaiian stilt, is an endangered water bird found only in the Hawaiian Islands. They stand about 16 inches tall, have glossy black backs, bright white fronts, and as their name suggests, really long pink legs that allow them to wade in deep water looking for crustaceans and worms. Their long legs also make them difficult to confuse with any other bird species. I.O. are considered to be the kinolau, or physical manifestation, of the Hawaiian god Ku in his fisherman form. I.O. were once much more common in Hawaii, but loss of wetland habitat and introduction of mammalian predators has reduced their population to less than 1,500 birds. Hawaiian stilts built their nest on the ground near shallow wetlands and are known to aggressively defend their nests by dive-bombing and loudly scolding any animal, including humans, that comes near. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Forest Bathing Hawaii, offering guided walks to reconnect with the natural world, in person at Lion Arboretum for individuals, private and corporate groups, and virtual walks gifted to frontline workers. ForestBathingHI.com On the next Fresh Air, a turning point in the fight for women's reproductive rights. The 1873 Comstock Act virtually outlawed contraception. We'll talk about the man behind the law, anti-vice crusader Anthony Comstock, and the women prosecuted under that statute. They're the subject of a new book by Amy Sohn, who will be our guest. Join us. Beginning this afternoon at 3, following On Point. You are back with the conversation. And as we look toward the fall and the return of thousands of public school students, what are the best practices to prevent the spread of COVID-19 among our keiki who may not be vaccinated? For that, we go to HPR's Ku'uvehi Arishi. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, there is a group of educators, researchers from the university and healthcare professionals who have all combined uh, to create a model that uh, has the 
component of COVID-19 testing in schools for staff and teachers. So free on-site testing once a week, and then also a curriculum component, culturally appropriate curriculum for our Hawaii schools. And together, they've formed to uh, be called the Pacific Alliance Against COVID-19, or PAC, model. And this is something that was actually piloted at Kamaile Academy uh, over in Waianae this past spring for about uh, three months. There was on-site COVID-19 uh, free antigen testing offered to staff, not mandated. Um, and then there was also uh, the curriculum modules that were given to teachers to offer up uh, in class. Now, uh, Paul Kepka, the principal over there at Kamaile, uh, said that this all sort of when teachers and staff and students are comfortable, they can focus on the learning. And that's really what the schools are trying to figure out right now. And so uh, over the course of three months, the researchers uh, found that more than 80 percent of staff and teachers participated in testing. Uh, nearly 90% said the program promoted better understanding of the need for testing, uh, even though our vaccination rates are going up uh, statewide. And then uh, 52% said they were more likely to be vaccinated as a result. I got to speak to Dr. May Okihiro, who's a pediatrician and director of research over at the Waianae Coast Comprehensive uh, Health Center. And she had said, you know, it's just that purely having that connection of public, ha uh, public health access to those in the schools and really using the schools, students, teachers, parents as that conduit to the community to let them know this is really how testing works and this is really how vaccinations work. Here's Okihiro. It's really working with the school, the principal, the teachers, the staff on best ways that we can get these services to people who are out in the community. So they've reminded of misinformation out there that we can help to correct. We've had people worried about needles and pain and that, you know, just the fear of testing and vaccination. And so we've been able to talk them through that. And then once some of the teachers and staff have been tested, They've been great in telling others that, you know what, this is easy. Come, come, watch, I'll do it. And people, I think, have appreciated just that connection. And Okihiro had emphasized that, you know, 40% of the COVID-19 cases we know are asymptomatic. So you're not going to see the symptoms. And so the testing component offered at these schools is sort of that extra safety blanket for teachers to know that, okay, I can go home to my family, I can come back, things are, are at least for today, are all right. Yeah, and, and with the vaccinations, I know they're going down to age uh, 12, you know, but obviously the really young ones, yeah, are unprotected. Right. The Kamaile Academy, for example, is uh, pre-K through 12, and so about 1,200 students, 120 staff and teachers all trying to figure out how to do this and that I wanted to get back to that curriculum component because I was really interested in this. So what makes this this model unique in my eyes is that culturally appropriate curriculum. So modules, slide decks, uh, video clips were developed by Pauline Chin, a curriculum studies professor uh, up at UH and is available to all teachers in these classrooms. And it includes history of infectious diseases in Hawaii and the impact that's had on the native uh, population, but also public health policies under the Hawaiian kingdom. 
for Kepka, the principal, uh, he said that, you know, this piece was critical to engaging the students in this process. You know, why are these public health officials here at our campus getting that um, awareness about how COVID and preventing the community spread of COVID could work? Uh, I think that was part of that. But the good news for this model is the NIH, the National Institutes for Health, uh, of Health did uh, go ahead and infuse another $3 million in this wow. project to expand this to other campuses. And so the PAC team is uh, looking for teachers right now, offering $200 to teachers who may be interested in participating and bringing the model to their schools. Well, I love that they have worked the uh, the policies under the Hawaiian Kingdom in there too, because you know uh, the monarchy, the elite, did take care uh, and look out for the people when it came to pandemics. And Shane had said that was critical, is that the students see themselves in the curriculum as part of this entire model. Right, and we are, now we're dealing with the uh, Delta variant, which is widespread, so lots to be concerned about as we start the fall. But thank you so much. Mahalo. We have been talking to HPR's reporter, Ku'uvehihiri Ishii. Uh, you can find more of her stories on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This morning, Acting State Epidemiologist Dr. Sarah Kemble joins us live to talk about the latest COVID-19 news. The headline across the country is that the Delta variant is now the dominant strain in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Kemble, thanks so much for uh, joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, what can you uh, tell us about the Delta cases, the Delta variant cases here in the islands? Yeah, in Hawaii, we are seeing uh, Delta variant become more predominant, just like we have seen in other parts of the United States and in other countries. We did anticipate that this might happen, having watched what happened on the U.S. mainland, where Delta variant got introduced, it has expanded to become the dominant strain that's circulating of COVID-19, and we're beginning to see that in Hawaii now as well. So uh, what else can you share with us, uh, just as we, you know, start to get more people vaccinated, but we, you know, still are seeing cases pop up. And from what I understand, a lot of those uh, cases are, you know, people who have not gotten the shots yet. Right. So there's a few things we do know about the Delta variant and then some unknowns with the Delta variant. But what we do know is that it appears to be more transmissible than other strains, even more so than some of the other variants of concern that we've heard about before like the B117 variant um, that had originated in the UK. Uh, so we're seeing that transmissibility manifest as bumps in cases and clusters, uh, even in areas where vaccine is relatively high. What we notice with Delta is that it really goes straight to populations that are unvaccinated and can spread very rapidly in those populations. So where you have a pocket of people that aren't very highly vaccinated, you can see outbreaks still occurring, and that's what we're seeing with Delta. And so what else can you share with us, you know, about maybe the cases, uh, the COVID cases, the people that are getting um, the virus, but maybe are already uh, vaccinated? Those breakthrough cases, I think they call them. Sure. Well, vaccination is highly effective, even against the Delta variant and other variants of concern. 
no vaccine is 100% effective, so you're going to see some breakthrough cases. We have seen that in Hawaii as well. Um, we do see some people who have been fully vaccinated and still do contract COVID-19. Um, most of those uh, cases have been relatively mild and many are asymptomatic. What we still see is that vaccine is protecting people against hospitalization and death, which is what's really the most important thing about getting vaccinated is having that protection against severe disease. Right. I mean, folks were very worried about overwhelming our health system, uh, you know, not having the proper equipment, ventilators, that kind of thing, uh, if we were just slammed with cases. So that picture has changed. Um, but, you know, we still need to be on guard. People are still, you know, using masks indoors. That's uh, right. Yeah, because even though um, disease is more mild when you're vaccinated, we still have uh, nearly 40% of our population, a little bit over 40% of our population that's not yet fully vaccinated. That's still a lot of people out there who are susceptible. And if you do contract the virus, including some of these newer variants, you can still end up being hospitalized or having severe outcomes. So we're not at a point yet where the entire population is vaccinated enough to protect us all. Um, those who are unvaccinated are still susceptible. And I think that I, that's the message I really want people to understand um, for their own protection. Vaccine is really the way to go to, to get that added protection for yourself and for your family. You know, and we heard how uh, the public schools are looking forward to bringing everybody back in the classrooms uh, during the fall. Uh, but, there, you know, there is some testing happening in, uh, in some areas. Uh, and I'm, I'm just wondering, we did have all those test kits that we bought last year, and I think they expired in March. Have we gotten any word yet from the federal agencies as whether we can use those and, and maybe use them in the schools? Some of those test kits uh, did have their shelf life extended, and we've been able to continue using uh, those for pop-up testing events and for some of the testing in schools and universities. Um, others, we're still waiting to hear determination of whether the test life can be extended. What we're finding with testing uh, for pop-up events and for schools and for other congregate settings, the limiting step or the challenge has been less about um, supplies. Of course, we wanted to solve supply issues right away, which is why those test kits were purchased. But it's really about the manpower on the ground to make the testing actually happen, so the people to perform the testing and coordinate it. Um, and that's been uh, a heavier lift. And so that's why some of the tests are ready to be used, but we also need to um, get the infrastructure stood up to make that testing happen. Now, early on, we did have help from the Guard, the National Guard. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, their presence was, you know, seen everywhere, right from the airports to just the, the neighborhood testing uh, sites that were set up. I think one in my neighborhood that I went to, they were helping out. But they, they've pulled back, haven't they? The National Guard is still doing testing. We've had... Um, Fewer occasions to need to call in for large extended outbreaks, thankfully. Uh, but we are looking forward to look at longer-term solutions because the National Guard have other duties that they may, they will need to return to at some point and other priorities within the response, such as vaccine. Um, there are uh, efforts underway now to expand testing in schools for the fall term. So uh, we are really making a push for back-to-school testing and testing during the fall term. Um, so that's something to look out for. Uh, and 
that is part of the process of planning right now to figure out how to get that stood up. We do have some pilot projects underway that have been ongoing through the summer. In addition to Kamile Academy that you were just heard about, um, there are several um, of Oahu's public schools that are also doing uh, testing for staff and students this summer. And so we'll be expanding the number of schools into the fall. Yeah, we watched the private schools uh, kind of step up early on with the testing and all the uh, personal protective gear, you know, the masks and the shields, um, you know, but, uh, you know, probably not every school can do that. There's been a lot of questions, too, in what's most effective. And as we learn more about the virus, we're learning more about which methods of mitigation are the most effective. So, for example, uh, face shields, which initially uh, were were a big focus of attention. Uh, we've learned from the CDC since then that face shields really aren't a replacement for a mask that actually covers your nose and mouth because the virus gets aerosolized and a face shield can't protect against virus that's floating in the air. Um, it is a good sneeze guard, but it's not going to fully protect against an airborne virus. So now the, the shift has, the emphasis has really shifted to um, masking and to also using cohorts, so keeping your pod sizes small within the classroom so that as students move from where one area to another, if they can um, stick as much as possible to the same grouping of students, that's going to also keep that um, group stable. So if you do have an introduction in that group, you're not going to see it spread throughout the school. So there's many layers that we talk about in school settings, which includes masking, it includes vaccinating those who are eligible. It also includes uh, cohorting and other things you've heard about, like hand hygiene. And, you know, we have heard concern about uh, our keiki because, uh, you know, a lot of them under 12, you know, uh, aren't eligible for the vaccines yet. But we do want to keep them safe. So, you know, I guess that's why we're pushing to get up to that 70 percent threshold so we can relax more of these restrictions. Yeah, I think there's three things that are really going to help us with coming back to school in the fall. Number one is vaccine. And vaccine, even though not all children are eligible, the more we can vaccinate those who are and their family members, we are actually also providing a cocoon of protection then to our keiki. Testing is also going to be a great help. And getting tested, even when you have relatively mild symptoms, it's really important because if you do find that the symptoms are from COVID-19, you can nip that in the bud before um, a child ends up in a school setting where other kids might be exposed. And finally, mitigation is not gone yet. I know we're excited to have some of our restrictions relaxing now, but we do have to remember that the safety measures are there because they do improve safety. So wearing your mask when indoors is still gonna be really important going into this fall and also, um, observing uh, distancing where you can and hand hygiene and remembering um, to uh, also improve ventilation in indoor spaces as much as possible. And is it your sense that, uh, you know, is, are there discussions about relaxing that 70% rule if we can get more people vaccinated? We're at 60 now. Yeah, so we are moving, you know, we're, the, the bar is moving in terms of getting closer to a higher level of population coverage that is a huge help because the more the community is vaccinated, the less you're going to see extensive spread of COVID-19. We're still going to see pockets of disease um, until we get to really high levels of population coverage. 
but um, we're definitely seeing a slowdown in the case numbers, even with the numbers already vaccinated in the state. All right. Well, we certainly thank you for your time today, Dr. Kemble. Uh, thanks so much, and uh, you stay safe, too. Thank you. All right. We have been hearing from Dr. Sarah Kemble, acting state epidemiologist, about the latest with the COVID-19 virus. So Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration on Oahu, Maui, Hawaii Island, and Kauai, celebrating 60 years, featuring Daikin Air Conditioners. Learn more about Daikin at CostcoHawaii.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you if you knew the name of the state's first lieutenant governor, who was also the U.S.'s first lieutenant governor of Chinese and Hawaiian ancestry. This gentleman was born in 1908 in Pahoa on Hawaii Island to a Cantonese father and a Hawaiian mother. He graduated from Hilo High School in 1926 and opened a grocery store in the coastal town in 1930. He was elected to public office for the first time in 1934 to the territor territorial House of Representatives. He was elected for a second term two years later and successfully ran for a seat in the Territorial Senate in 1938. He was often referred to as the Wonder Boy of Hawaiian politics because he consistently won elections by large margins. In 1940, he was elected to the Hawaii County Board of Supervisors, and in 1948, he won the first of his six consecutive terms as Hawaii County Chairman. In 1959, he was elected as lieutenant governor alongside William F. Quinn in our state's first gubernatorial election. In the Chinese community in Hawaii, he was commonly known as Li Yatwo, but he was raised by his maternal grandparents, took their last name, which is why you know him as James Kealoha. And if you're a Hilo native, you know him because of Four Miles Park, officially known as James Kealoha Beach Park which was named in his honor. Congratulations to Richard Young of Maui. That's today's quiz. If you have one you'd like to share, write to TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Well, we are lightening up the show with our regular segment, The Long View, with Neil Milner, and he wants to talk about humor. So what's so funny, Neil? Well... The first thing is that the paper that, try, that is entitled What Makes People Laugh, which is a scholarly paper to be published uh, soon by Caleb Warren, doesn't make people laugh at all. It's a serious endeavor, but it would put most people to sleep. <laughs> uh, but, and I put it in there because I wanted to talk, see that there are different ways to talk about comedy. What they do is they, they review the extensive literature on why people laugh and what, what good humor is. And what they find is that if you sort all the way through it, there's really three things that seem to make a difference, that seem to make people laugh. And again, these are all subjective. People react different ways. One of them is um, if the, a person uh, sees that there's a violation of appraisal. Well, let me tell you the quick joke, and then we can see. <laughs> Chopper walks by a little girl waiting in line to see Santa Claus, and she sees that the little girl is holding a handwritten sign that says, I love Satan. Well, it takes a minute, right? Uh, that, and, and if you see it's funny, it's because 
there's a violation, obviously, in your head. Most people don't believe that the little girl would be worshiping Satan. And then they thought, oh, yeah, she misspelled it. It's supposed to be Santa. She got the letters uh-huh. first. And then the other, so that's violation of appraisal. And then you have this reaction, well, it, it's not something that's awfully offensive. It's benign, and that the little girl was trying to do something benign, and she didn't. And then simultaneous, it's called simultaneity appraisal. The shopper understands that the literal and the intended are, you know, are all part of the same sign, and it all works out. It's a complicated way to say that's what really makes humor work for the most part, and they emphasize how it varies by culture. Well, nice try, and the paper will possibly be well-received. But what got me interested about it is that there are better ways, two things. There are better ways to think about, learn about humor that I think. And the second thing is how much the issue of humor has become fraught um, and polarized and much more tied up in anger over the past uh, five to six years for sure, thanks to, to more polarization and thanks to other changes in society, including um, concern with identity and, and uh, cancel culture. So that's, uh, that's where it is. If you want to read the paper, you could certainly read the paper. Um, you, you'll get some stuff out of it. But I think a more important thing to do, if you want to learn about humor, um, what, the best way to learn about what makes people laugh and, and what an art that is, it, you should read some of what the stand-up com- comedians have written about it, because stand-up comedy is an extraordinarily difficult art form. And both uh, Steve Martin uh, wrote a book many years ago, Memoirs, and, and Jerry Seinfeld has written about it a lot, really help you understand what, in their view, they're trying to do and what they think makes people laugh. Um, and you might take a look if you uh, uh, if you want to spend say about 50 minutes looking at an HBO video uh, on HBO, uh, HBO. It's on YouTube now of a show called Talking Funny, which is Seinfeld, uh, Ricky Gervais, uh, uh, and a couple of other people uh, talking about uh, they're all, all all comedians. One of them is, is Louis C.K., who, of course, has become somewhat disgraced since then. But one of the things that you learn if you watch this thing is, is two very different things, some very interesting notions about laughter and comedy. And also, it should, looking at Louis C.K., uh, all of which, all of this happened before he was caught out, um, it makes you think about the role that humor plays in today's culture, and does that change as people become, dis- uh, let's say, disgraced? And what do you do? What are the rules, if any, about comedians and comedy uh, who want to be on the edge, as almost any comic does in different sorts of ways? So I would say take a look, take a look at that, and it's a good way to learn something about yourself, something about how you reacted to all the late-night comedy anti-Trump humor, um, how, you, how your attitudes, if at all, have changed toward ethnic jokes and toward the kind of jokes that have been told in Hawaii over the years. And you've seen recently some controversies about that, that these are just the same old jokes we're always telling. Hawaii's different. They don't mean anything bad by it versus other people that say ethnic, ethnic humor is ethnic slurs. Well, you know, you do hear that, you know, laughter is the best best medicine. And very honestly, you know, watching late night uh, 
comedians was a saving grace for me during this very stressful, divisive time in our country. Uh, it just helped to kind of take the edge off. Well, yeah, you have to ask yourself how much of that was because you agree with the politics of the of the criticism and how much of it uh, was about the art form and about what they were trying to do. Um, I think that both of those are, are important questions, but I, I ask my friends, because I went through this myself, are your standards about uh, about comedy lowering because you agree with the with the kind of joke that the person is telling that is um you know if there is it because it's an anti-trump joke that you like it and makes you feel better or is there something else that's going on i think actually it's a combination of both but i think a lot of what made people feel good about humor uh, late-night comedy uh, was that a lot of the late-night comedy turned manifestly anti-Trump. It was pretty good as a whole, I think. But the other thing is, what other kind of humor um, was refreshing to you? I guess I'm asking you, I'm asking mm-hmm. the, the readers I've, and the listeners I've asked myself, you know, if you do uh, observational comedy like Jerry Seinfeld, which is kind of, let's say, a, a man of, a subtly non-political you know, if you do jokes about your kids uh, and and parents, um, was that refreshing in the same way during the pandemic to you? Did, you know, did that mm-hmm. make you laugh and make you feel better? Um, it's a complicated question, but I think it's the kind of question that that gets that needs to get more attention now because the line between politics and culture and um, humor is it always shifts, but I think it's shifting now in a, in a much a bigger sort of way. Well, I, I think of, you know, like some of the early, the slapstick, you know, yeah. uh, and, and the the clean family <laughs> uh, humor. You know, we had uh, Lucille Ball, you know, you had uh, uh, Bill Cosby, you know, and then you had him fall uh, off the pedestal, uh, you know, with his imprisonment. And now he's, you know, out of jail. And, and so, yeah, you, you kind of have to wonder, all right, so, you know, how do you deal with all that? Well, that's right. You also have to remember that a lot of the early comedy, um, and by the way, Chris Rock was the fourth uh, comedian in this, you know, in this in this talk session. Uh, you also have to remember how much who was not present in the early comedy, um, and that was uh, people of color. And even Cosby's early stuff, uh, when he was enormously popular, was not <laughs> was not race humor of of. Uh, of any kind. Uh, let me give you an example. Chris Rock talks about a joke that he tells that he used to tell that he always liked. The difference between a rich black person and a and a rich white person. He says a rich white person, you know, he's going to stay rich. His kids going to stay rich. Their kids are going to stay rich. A black person who's rich is always thinking about it's the next. It's the, the next step is going to make me poor. The next step is going to make me even poorer. Than that and he uses that as an example. He tells it better than I do. Um, and Cosby's humor really wasn't like that at all. It really wasn't a very, he had some African-American characters later on, but much of it was not manifestly racial as a lot of the humor was at that time. Yeah, so lots to uh, unpack there. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, All right, well, thanks so much, Neil. You're welcome, take care. 
Well, we do have to go now, but tomorrow we talk about a new surf book out about women wave riders. Got a story to share? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Want to listen back to something you heard? Find our shows archived online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.